the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Monday, December 6th. The delight to bring back our good friend, my dear friend, the Honorable Dr. Tevi Troy. Each one of those titles he earned, including one by Senate confirmation. Author of several books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, how are you, man? I'm great, Seth. I always love being on your show and talking to you, so thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I The same. Let me start off with a piece of trivia before we get to uh, a piece you wrote about uh, political correctness and uh, the cancel culture in universities, if that's okay. Can I, can I play a little trivia with you? Sure. You're up for trivia. This is kind of a project of mine, I, I and I'll explain it in a minute. Maybe it's it's self-evident. Um, who is today as a great hero of politics over whom we should lament no longer is around and we should emulate more? However, in 1987 was lambasted in the New York Times – as being a racist, and when he ran for president in 1996, was covered in Phoenix, Arizona, for a rally where hundreds of people chanted, go away, racist, sexist, hey, hey, hey. Uh, could it be the late Bob Dole? It is. It is. This is my project that I've been engaged in for years. I look at um, a Republican who... Miserabile Dictu passes away, okay, passes away, and then is lauded as such a great representation of what politics used to be and statesmanship and nothing like the kind of Republicans we have now, only for me to go back and read what was being said about them when they were making their name, when they were doing in their heyday, what they were saying when they were in power and getting reelected or elected. It's a fun game. There's a a name for this phenomenon, Scott. Oh? Yeah. It's the only Republicans the media praise are dead ones. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or no longer relevant ones. Boy, right? I'll, I'll tell you. Time. I'll tell you. On and on this goes. There's a trick to it, though, that, 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 that trips up of the American people, I think, are too many, is they buy it and they believe it after, after a long time. Oh, yes, if we, were only, if we only had Barry Goldwater again. Boy, I'll tell you. Yeah, what do they say about Barry Goldwater? Oh, right? I've, got, your, I've got I've got a file. Desk, you know, oh done. my God, <laughs> Mein Kampf stalked the '64 convention, according to the mayor of San Francisco in 1964. Mein Kampf. Yeah. Well, that actually reminds me of one of my favorite stories. That in 1969, Nancy Pelosi was supposed to rent a house in San Francisco and pulled out at the last minute when she found out that the person from whom she was going to rent was made the house available because. He was going to work for Richard Nixon in the new Nixon administration. Oh, really? Said, I'm not going to rent a house from anyone who's going to work for Richard Nixon. No. So don't tell me partisanship started yesterday yeah. or, you know, with Newt Gingrich or with Donald Trump oh, or yeah. anyone recent. 
It's been around for a long time. CBS Sunday Morning, I don't know if you ever watch it, did a little thing yesterday on uh, the toughness of political rhetoric. And they started with, um, it, well, of course, they started with Lo- Lauren Boebert versus Ilan Omar. They had all the quotes of Lauren Boebert, not a single quote or attributed quote to Ilan Omar, by the way. But the more interesting thing to me was the clip from 1984 of Newt Gingrich swinging it out with Tip O'Neill. And they, were, they made you think Newt Gingrich called Tip O'Neill un-American? Not the way it went. It was Tip O'Neill right. who called Newt Gingrich un-American. It's just, it's just really political murder what they get away with, Tevi. It's political murder. No, and I was watching the, um, I think Jake Tapper had an interview yesterday where he could not be, have been more solicitous than Ilhan Omar. Now, <laughs> I understand that I'm not in favor with, of what Omar Yeah, said, no, I get it. But, I get it. But I, why can't yeah. you just say, well, Ilhan Omar, you also engage in really hateful rhetoric yeah. and said all about the Benjamins, about Jews. I mean, both of these people Some people did something. Terrible, yeah. terrible, stereotypical rhetoric. Americans they overreact to the that. fear of al-Qaeda. Some people did something on 9-11. I mean, there's a lot there, and they just won't touch it. They won't touch it, will they? But you wrote a column on Bob Dole. Uh, take a moment, uh, and uh, we praise here uh, decent and honorable men. You want to say what you wrote about Bob Dole? I did. And, you know, when I try and write obituaries, as you know, Seth, I write them a lot. Yep. Uh, I try and do something a little different than what you see from everybody else. So everybody else is telling you, you know, he went and he served in his military, which I do mention, served in the military and was injured serving this great country and then, you know, ran for president a couple of times and ran for vice president. But what I talk about is the two great relationships that defined his life. One was his friendship with Richard Nixon. And yep. this goes back to the 1950s. Yep. And in fact, in 1960, he talked about how he brought Richard Nixon to the House of Representatives to meet all the members, and they all wanted to line up to meet him. Yep. It's not necessarily our perception of Nixon. No. no. Um, and so that was one relationship, his, his relationship with his friendship with Nixon, who actually elevated him in the early 70s and made him chairman of the Republican National Committee. And that's kind of what made Dole. That's why he ended up on the ticket in 76, because of the prominence he got from, from Nixon's blessing. Uh, but the other great relationship was his rivalry with George H.W. Bush. Right. And right. Quit lying about my had, record, right? Well, I mean, it goes back before that. Yeah. It, when Dole is replaced as head of the Republican National Committee, uh-huh. it is Bush who replaces him. Yeah. And he's yeah. angry about that, and he says, I've been bushwhacked. Yeah. Right? You know, intentional choice of words there. Yeah. And then in 76, they both buy for the vice presidential yeah. nomination. Dole wins out. Yeah. He doesn't win the vice presidency because Ford loses to Jimmy Carter. But they were they were both fighting for that vice presidential nomination. And then in 1980, they both try and beat Ronald Reagan. They both lose, but uh, Bush ends up on the ticket. And then in 88, they go at each other again. And this is when where you talk about uh, the stop lying about my record. Yeah, yeah, that was 88. That's right. Yeah. Right. So he's on live television when Bush and Dole are asked, what do you think of the other person? And Bush says something anodyne, and Dole says, stop lying about my record. And Bush smiled throughout, showed his great discipline, but after wrote in his diary something along the lines of how uh, Dole is a no-good SOB. So um, there was some real hatred between There was, and there's something, a mutual friend of ours, I think, I haven't talked to him forever. I hope he's still around. Marshall Whitman. I don't know if he's still around. He once yeah. he once pointed out to me that um, from 1976 to 2004, every Republican campaign had a Bush or a Dole on it. Yep. Which is kind of an interesting oh, yeah. thing when you think. His point was, isn't our party bigger than those two men? <laughs> but 
these two men did loom large, and Robert Dole really did. Bob Dole really did loom large. The CBS show I was watching yesterday said he's the only man to run for and lose both the vice presidency and the presidency. Could that po- Mondale? Could that possibly be true? That doesn't strike me. As it correct. doesn't strike me although, as right. Although Mondale was already vice president when he lost. I guess. I guess. Yeah. 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 It sounds like a forced. Statistic. It sounds like a forced thing because he did lose a campaign for right. vice presidency, Mondale, in eighty, right. and he lost obviously right. in eighty four. But, but I, I just want to add one more thing yeah. about Dole. Yeah. The Bush Bush relationship that really there was Bush rivalry that defined his. Like, a lot of people were surprised that Dole endorsed Trump and backed Trump right. in 2016 and That's 2020. Right. And they right. said, oh, no, not the great moderate Bob Dole. Yeah. You know, he wasn't such a moderate back in the 70s. That's not how they described him. But anyway, you know, people didn't perceive um, Dole as someone who would have supported Trump. But if you recall, Trump was very harsh on the Bushes. Oh, yeah. Uh, including George W. Bush and obviously Jeb, yeah. who he called um, you know, low-energy Jeb. Yeah. And I wonder if that hatred of Bush that Dole had going back many decades didn't help influence him and make him think more highly of Trump because Trump was going after the Bushes. That's interesting. That's interesting. Just a little bit, maybe, huh? Yeah. Just a little bit. One of the... one of Excuse me. One of the politicians in our party um, who loomed as large as he did, largely as he did, ran for president, who I know the, probably the least about. I mean, I, I think I know what most people know and about him, but I didn't know anything about that Nixon story. I didn't know about his relationship with Nixon until I read your obit. I just didn't know that. And I thought I knew about Nixon, too. The historians didn't do a lot with that, I guess. Yeah, and, and again, I didn't see it in the obit either. No, that's interesting. No, I'm glad you do it the way you did. You should write a book someday on a collection of obituaries, see what we can learn from these states. I am planning on it. Are I you? think I've got about 25 of them already, and uh, you know, more, <laughs> more to come down the road. Yeah, I'm sure it's a supply and demand issue that uh, right. we kind of regret the supply, but uh, the demand, uh, because we live under a uh, under a uh, finite life, the demand will, will of course, uh, be met. Can we do uh, the campus of liberalism on the other side of this break? I want to spend some time Absolutely. with you on that. Our guest is Dr. Tevi D. Troy, the Honorable Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. The author, Dr. Tevi Troy, cultural historian, is with us. When I talk about cultural historian, this is it. His piece on campus uh, cancel culture um, what he calls the long and winding road to campus illiberalism uh, in the current issue of Discourse, or if you just go to tevitroy.org, you can read it uh, as well, T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y, tevitroy.org. You can read this history of how we got here, and it's very, very well done. I want to tease you something, Tevi, about uh, about something first, and then I want to get into this with you. Uh, Is it the standard of writing... You've often seen people write and quote people with similar last names, and then they'll put in parentheses, no relationship or no relation. (laughs) Is that the standard uh, such that when there is, you don't say anything? I'm trying to remember, for example, did Bill Buckley ever quote Jim Buckley and say, my brother? Um, Right. I I asked my brother, who is a historian, (laughs) well-regarded historian in peace. And I I guess I said, one time I quoted my brother, and I wrote in parentheses, yes, relation. Uh Uh-huh. 
uh-huh. and the editor took it out, which I thought was clever. So I but, think we're uh, right then. The default is you only say something about the relationship if it's non-existent. Uh, I, I guess so. Because you quote the historian Gil Troy on one of his books. He is a fantastic historian. Um, and I've known some of his students, too, over the years back when he was uh, actively teaching um, at McGill. He Maybe he actually the quote you use for him is – well, the quote you use for him might be a good starting point uh, for this discussion. But he wrote in the 1990s, the free free speech new left had morphed into the PC left, the politically correct left. So obsessed with identity politics and cultural control, it proposed speech codes on campus. Was was that the turning point where so much of what we knew of old school liberalism really converted into left wing rigidity and monolithic uh, concept of uh, of ideas was that the was that the switch was that what killed liberalism? I, I would say in general yes, but there's no black and white switch in this stuff. It's more like train stops on the way to a destination. Okay, but but I think they really got far along to that destination in the late 80s and early 90s with the political correctness movement. And, and I think it's apt that you quote my brother, yeah. Gil, on this, who, as you know, was a liberal in those days. Yeah. And the stifling, anti-freedom, anti-free expression attitude of the left has really driven him to the right. I, I wouldn't say he's necessarily for you and I are, but he's much more critical of the left than he was in those days. Well, we'll get into the history in a moment, but you just gave me one more thought I wanted to comment on, because I have said for at least two years now, I think I've been saying, when we look, we in the conservative movement look to get recruits. I suspected then, have been for a while, a couple years now, that we're going to get them from the liberals who have run into cancel culture on the campuses, like you see it with Brett Weinstein and people like that. maybe, Maybe Gil's one of them, your brother, but... But, yeah, can I give you a terrific please. story on this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week. It was, a, it was a, a journalistic article, a reported article, not an opinion piece. It was talking about the alumni who are frustrated with the stifling conditions on campus. Mm-hmm. And it gave the story of the Cornell Development Office was frustrated that alumni who were believed in freedom did not want to give to Cornell. So the Development Office introduced this particular wealthy alumnus to a bunch of moderate professors to show that there were different perspectives on campus. Yeah. And it completely backfired, and that's the word used in the article, because the professors complained about how stifling it was on campus and how they live in holy terror of saying something factually accurate but not deemed appropriate by the political correctness gods and being run out of town. Oh, how funny. What a great story. Yeah, that is a great story. Of course, Cornell itself is not immune this is not new to Cornell. Uh, the, the uprisings that st- – uh, some colleges got a lot of attention, a lot more than others. Berkeley, you write about Berkeley, of course. Cornell should have gotten some – Claremont should have gotten attention. But Cornell, too, it drove a lot of scholars away and even some beyond, right? Yeah, so what you're referring to, of course, is the takeover of Willard Strait Hall in 1969 by a group of, of black radicals yeah. uh, with guns. I'm going to point out real quick, you know a lot about Cornell as a graduate of it. Go ahead, sorry. Just... And also someone who's written an article yeah. about yeah. The, the 40th anniversary of, the, of this terrible event. But right. what happened is these radicals take over the campus violently with guns, and the campus um, initially condemns them but then they pull back their condemnation because they can't be seen 
to be criticizing African Americans. Right. There they. Right. And a number of professors who were threatened in those days, including with their names and addresses read over the radio, yep. uh, professors like Walter Burns and Alan Bloom, uh, they decamped. They left Cornell and went elsewhere. And the, the actually the list, which I, I do detail in, in my article, maybe posted, but um, the, the detail, the list of conservatives or people who became conservatives who were at Cornell in that era is really staggering, including also um, Paul Wolfowitz was there and Donald Kagan, who just died this year. I mean, there were so many smart young conservatives or young people who became conservatives because of the capitulation of the administration. Maybe even Walter Burns and Alan Bloom, in a sense. I mean, they weren't really conservatives in those days, were they? They certainly weren't Republicans. No, they weren't Republicans anyway. I was going to mention even Clinton Rossiter. That was even more tragic. Was that part of it, or was that a different situation? Um, he, he did commit suicide, and it's, un, you know, it's unclear why people make that terrible, terrible decision, but uh, it may have had something to do with it. It may have had something. But I think he was on the wrong side of it. He sided with the administration. It, it affected him dramatically, clearly, yeah, at did. some point, and ultimately he, he's the scholar, of course, of the Federalist Papers. All right, let's 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 get to it. Let's get to this history. It it really didn't start then, but 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 Berkeley looms Berkeley looms large on all this because it had a free speech movement. Mario Savio was the name. Right? Do I have that name right, Mario Savio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get from Queens. Yeah, in my hometown. There you go. All right, give us this history, buddy. Well, well let me back up one okay, step, which sure. is in the forties and fifties, there was a, a perception that it was stifling on campus not from the left, though, but from the right, that the um, anti-communist right had prevented people from speaking up. And even if you were leftist but not communist, you felt like you weren't able to speak and you might lose your job on campus. And so the, the right was seen as the, um, the agent of, of suppression at the time. And the, um, uh, the great Mort Saul, who was a comedian, had this line about, about Joe McCarthy, which was, he doesn't object to what you have to say, just your right to say it. <laughs> <laughs> we got to use that. Yeah, it's, it's really great. But that, that is really where the left is today. But, you know, that, that's fast-forwarding a few decades. And so um, there is the sense that we kind of went too far at stifling speech in the, in the 40s and 50s. And then in the early 60s, uh, the people who were pushing for civil rights, uh, really equal rights for all Americans regardless of race, um, we're coming up against the kind of campus anti-free speech attitude. And this is what happened at Berkeley. We really started as a civil rights protest, and they tried to arrest someone who just had a booth talking about uh, a civil rights organization. And this person gets, uh, gets arrested for having that, which is you know, just mind-blowing today. Hold, hold the thought. Look- hold the thought. This, this is great history. I love doing this with you. Let's take the break and pick up on that when we come right back. I'm Seth Leaps, and he's Tevi Troy, The Long and Winding Road. To campus illiberalism. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. We're talking about the long and winding road to campus illiberalism. Illiberalism. It's the um, it's the histor- history of how we got to PC and cancel, cancel culture, multi, uh, multiculturalism, and uh, really assaults on free speech. Tevi, you were talking a little bit uh, 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 about where all this started, and feel free to pick up where you left off. Right, so I was talking about the, the kind of stifling at its at, um, atmosphere on yeah. campus in the 40s and 50s, and then things start to change in the 1960s in the push for civil rights, 
for equal rights for all, all Americans, um, these, some of these restrictive rulings on campus are, are being fought. And so the famous free speech movement at Berkeley, which you know is known as one of the most left-wing campuses, was really a push for civil rights. And this guy named Mario Savio stands on a police car and captivates the crowd, and they have uh, two days of protests to the arrest of a civil rights worker who was just trying to organize people at a table. I mean, you look at the radical things that are proposed on uh, tables on, in, the, in the campus square today, <laughs> this was uh, pretty mild. But, um, uh, but that really kind of set this idea that, oh, we like free speech in our universities. We want universities to be a place of free expression. And that, you know, with some exceptions, I mean, you mentioned Cornell in the late 60s, and you mentioned Claremont, but um, there was really... I would say almost a consensus for about 20 years that free speech is a value on both the left and on the right. Not among everybody, but among the, it was the predominant view of the left and the right that, that we were in favor of free speech. And then that starts to change, unfortunately, in the late 80s and the growth of the, the political correctness movement, where there are certain things you can't say on campus anymore. Free expression uh, starts to challenge. The... Tremendous irony to this, and I, and you you had quoted Mort Saul on McCarthy. Remind me if I don't, Bill, to bring up McCarthy again. There's something I wanted to mention to Tevi about it, a second thing about Joe McCarthy. But the idea of tenure that protects professors to say anything they really any really anything they want, uh, to explore any idea they wish, that came about really. Uh, yeah, it started. Before the Red Scare in 1940-41, I suppose, I guess. But but it really came about in a strong way with the universities just around that time, wasn't it? Wasn't it around the 50s when most colleges and universities started taking that issue extremely and exceedingly seriously? Uh, yes, but, you know, I, I wonder what the meaning of tenure is today. Yeah. I mean, yeah supposedly yeah. professors can say what they want, but right. they actually can't. Yeah, that's a good right. point. Even so tenure has tenure yeah. canceled, right? Yeah. That's a really good point. Uh, it, it, it's almost a right without any meaning, unless you're on, obviously, a certain side. But it is one of these things that turned upside down. I'll, I'll make the other McCarthy point as long as it's on my mind right now with you, and it's this. I'm reading a lot of books about the 50s and 60s in our politics, and it is amazing to me, something I didn't know, I guess, or didn't appreciate, how much McCarthyism loomed in the minds of Americans, or at least American liberals in the 60s and in the 50s and 60s, even after he died, they were tainting the entire Republican Party with McCarthyism in a way I had not appreciated, maybe in a way that something like they're trying to taint the Republican Party with Trump. I know it's not the same thing, but it seems like well, no, that, in some ways it is. Yeah, in right? some I mean, ways you know, it the is. Democrats love to wave yeah. the bloody shirt. Yeah. Republicans. And, you know, I, we heard about Goldwater and how crazy. Yeah. Was yeah. Yeah, I yeah, just... I, I think it's a, I think it's a good point, Seth. I, I think that is kind of the the way. But you know, to be fair, uh, Republicans have long talked about the specter of Jimmy Carter and how awful his presidency was. So um, yes, I, but I we're not worried problem. about Carterism, and he doesn't loom in our imagination as a monster greater than he was. Right? We don't over. Right, it's just he was a terrible president. He was a bad president. Out <laughs> <Yeah. often. laughs> and and it'll be replaced, God please, by our talk about Biden as a bad president. All right, this was the shortest of our segments. We do have a big one coming up, and I want to get into 
all of this stuff that you do from Sarah Lawrence, if I can, Sarah Lawrence College all the way through uh, Berkeley. Can you stick with me a little bit longer? I, I even want to talk about – I had Roger Kimball on the show last week, some of the work they were – Yeoman's work they were doing in the late 80s, he and Dinesh D'Souza and people like that. Can we get into that when we come right back? Sure. Mm-hmm. Our guest is Tevi Troy, The Long and Winding Road to Campus, Illiberalism, author of many important books. His most recent, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Inside story, years ago when, our sa- when in our salad days, I remember telling Tevi, I don't know why you deal with all this domestic policy stuff. Everything's foreign policy. Everything's foreign policy. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he never bought it. And I was just looking up some of his old books. And lo and behold, Amazon has a book entitled National Security Policy Proceedings with Tevi Choi as the first author. How do you like that? How do you like that? Tevi's going to have to explain himself. No, we'll do more uh, college campus cancel culture and the history when we come back. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Tevi Troy is our guest. He wrote a history of campus illiberalism. Uh, you can get it at his website, uh, tevitroy.org, T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y.org. It was published in Discourse. Tevi, one of the interesting things about this is how long it's been with us, campus illiberalism, and how some of the scholars we still cite today often cut their teeth writing about this stuff. I had Roger Kimball on my show last week. Dinesh D'Souza's is probably more popular now than he was then in some respects. That was really Dinesh D'Souza's first book, Illiberal Education, wasn't it? I mean, that end of the 80s was really when we started waking up to this, yeah? I mean, not only was it first book, but that book was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that book made it, that, that book made it mainstream. It, was, it got out of the conservative ghetto and it was talked about in the New York Times and Time Magazine and it really um, it, it raised the consciousness from the American people about this issue. And at the time, the left was, again, as I said, on board with the concept of free speech. So the people were just out of abhorrent that you were suppressing speech on, on college campuses. I, I remember, you know, can I tell? Yeah, I guess I can say it. It's, it's not super illuminating, but I remember uh, it must have been about just about a year after Dinesh's Dinesh D'Souza's book, Illiberal Education, came out, and I was uh, complaining to a mutual friend of ours who's a very well-known journalist in D.C. circles and was a colleague of his, I guess, at AEI for a spell. And and he was talking to me about what it was like at Claremont, and I was telling him, you know, there's it's it's getting pretty bad. It's 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 becoming very recognizable to what Dinesh wrote. And this journalist, even at AEI, said, uh, so it is as bad as Dinesh says. They were too many of us were really slow to wake up to this. My my thesis is that, you know, we conservatives for too long kind of would hear uh, college students preaching, you know, stories about revolutions in countries they never heard of, justified by French authors that we never heard of or could pronounce their names. And we kind of dismissed it for years, saying, oh, they'll they'll grow out of it. They'll. They'll they'll mature once they get jobs. It didn't work out that way. Uh, the the ivory tower had a lab leak. That stuff seeped into the rest of culture, didn't? I mean, the cancel culture you see on social media is run by these thirty forty year olds who 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 grew up in this in this intolerant atmosphere. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's only a fair assessment. But I think it's wise to mention the social media and its impact and how 
social media takes these mores of campus and brings it into the real world. It's only a very small percentage of people on Twitter who are doing this canceling, uh, but because t- the platform and, and Facebook as well, they, they are able to have an outsized influence. And there was a sense that people would go into the corporations and the corporations would kind of conservatize people and you know make, get them to think about the bottom line, rationalize them. But uh, that's not exactly what happened at all. And, you know, now the corporations are worried about people coming to campus and turning the corporations around as opposed to the corporations normalizing people. Yeah, no, I, I mean it's it's got it's gotten to the point where it's 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 hard to find you know conservative institutions anymore because of of that shall we say ivory tower lab leak if you will, I mean major American corporations that used to engender the enmity of the left probably were cussed out in uh, People's Park routinely, right? Those would be the corporations today <laughs> that are run by them, aren't they? Yes, but still incur the enmity, right? I, oh, okay. It's not like Elizabeth Warren is going to go light on okay. Twitter or Facebook. It's the whole, you know, the alligator will eat me last phenomenon if I appease it. I, I do want to point out something you would know a lot about, of course, which is this really was, this issue, people forget, this issue really was what attuned many eyes and ears to Ronald Reagan as a potential presidential candidate. It really was his first act as governor or amongst his first acts as governor when he uh, took office in 1967 to engage in this debate uh, and, and, and ensure, for example, the firing of Clark Kerr. And that gave him enough reputation to even consider a possible, possible testing of the waters run in 1968. But it was taken on the universities as a governor that really established his political bona fides once elected, wasn't it? Isn't that fair? Oh, I mean, it was also taking on the radicals on, on campus yep. who were taking over buildings. Yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, yes. and, and, you know, there's a legendary story about Ronald Reagan that one day he's walking, driving by these campus protests. And he's and he's in his, his government car, and he sees these uh, you know kind of sort of uh, shady hippie types, I guess, yeah. uh, holding up a sign saying "We are the future." And Reagan tells the car to stop, and he scribbles on a piece of paper, and he holds up the piece of paper to the hippie saying with the "We are the future" sign, and it says, "I'm selling my bonds." Yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. One of the problems that we face with this, though, is a loss. I mean, it's a serious problem more than a political discussion. It, it goes to a very serious issue of a lack of academic and intellectual rigor. Um, when we think of the great scholars we learned from, even if they weren't our teachers, maybe the Arthur Schlesingers, the, the Bo- Daniel Borstens, the, the Jean Genovese's and stuff like that, these people would never get tenure today. They just wouldn't. These were great yeah, liberal which thinkers. Which is kind of frightening, because I mean, these people were pretty liberal. And, yeah. Uh, um, Genovese would say when, when people thought, you know, he was a Marxist who believed in, in free speech. Yeah. Um, and he would say when people called him conservative, you know, if everything goes wrong and they put me in charge, you see how not conservative I actually am. Yeah, right, right. But he was concerned, I think, in his last works about America coming apart, disuniting, and, and, and the stuff he wrote about multiculturalism as, as a threat to liberalism would have been itself a threat to leftism and uh, perceived as such, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Te- it's and, a- and they were willing to stand against the crowd, the Schlesingers and Irving Howe, and Eugene Genovese, and talk in favor of free speech in a way that, unfortunately, a lot of leftists are not willing to do today. Yeah, it's not the uh, competition of ideas 
they believe in anymore, nor is it, as you say, your right to say it. Um, it's 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 a rigid demagoguery and rhetorical and intellectual. Uh, uh, how should I put it? Uh, framing of what's acceptable in academia, what's an acceptable field of discussion. And that's a narrowing. It's a narrowing of the field. It's a narrowing of the American intellect. And it's unfortunate. And it's uh, sad, tragic. Tevi Troy, thank you, sir. Thank you. God bless. God speed. You bet. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Just a follow-up thought on, on that interview on campus illiberalism. I became first keenly aware of it in Claremont in the 1980s, uh, and it started with an attempt to censor uh, Harry V. Jaffa, the professor who was such the great scholar on Lincoln, the Declaration of Independence, and the founding changed my world, uh, my intellectual world. Um, he gave a speech. You can get it online. Um, called The Reichstag is Still Burning in the midst of all this. Um, the Reichstag is Still Burning was that speech. And and I'll just give you a little taste of, of it by giving you his conclusion because at bottom, at bottom, what's going on here in these assaults on free thought, free speech, uh, free inquiry, uh, open, open, open questions in an open society – the assault on that is really an assault on the human person, the human being, and the nature of what constitutes a human being, as Aristotle taught. This is a universe, Jaffa taught, whose purposes are real, because if we think about it, we participate in those purposes every time we think. Because we know we can think, we know we can think well or ill. Because we know we can think, we know we can think about right and wrong, good and evil. Understanding that we can understand, we can understand what are rights and what are our duties. Understanding this, we understand that the fate of our civilization is yet in our hands because it is in our minds. And thus we can do, as Lincoln said, our duty as we understand it. Go do that duty. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.